should never lose sight of the fact of, that it is a privilege, that it is a, it is a joy for us to assemble together in an occasion like this as the people of God, as God's family, as we sung about earlier today, to offer our worship and praise unto Him. Do you ever feel like life is against you? That maybe no matter where you go or what you do, everyone and everything it seems like is trying to defeat you at every turn. Do you ever start to wonder if God is really for you? Or maybe you begin to think that He has turned against you as well, that it's not only your family or your friends or your co-workers or your classmates or your neighbors or even your brethren that are against you, but you have come to the realization or the conclusion in your own mind that God is against you as well. Well, regardless of whether you have ever asked those questions or whether you have ever felt that way or not, This morning what we want to do in our lesson is to consider the Apostle Paul's thought-provoking question that is found there in the book of Romans in chapter 8 at verse 31. It is the question that is here up on the screen, if God is for us, who is against us? And as we think about that question, hopefully have that question in our mind as we go throughout our study this morning, we want to look here just at Romans chapter 8 and the evidence that the Apostle Paul, as he wrote this chapter, gives us in this particular text that God is most definitely for us, His beloved children. If we are children of God, if we have given ourselves wholly and completely to Him, if we have made the decision at some point in our life to follow His Son, Jesus Christ, that God is definitely for us. And so I hope that this lesson will be helpful and beneficial to all of us. Again, whether we have ever pondered those questions or had those moments in our life or not, but especially for those in the audience this morning that may be there. You may be thinking that everyone is against you. Everything in life just seems to be totally opposed to you. And you're even thinking because maybe Satan is kind of getting into your thought process that God himself is against you. I hope that you will listen very closely to the evidence that the Apostle Paul gives us here for God being with us. The first evidence that we want to see is in this verse that the Apostle Paul asks this great question. At verse 31 again, the Apostle says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us? Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That should be verse 32. I've got to talk to my secretary a little bit better about putting these notes and PowerPoints together. That's me, by the way. That's not my wife who's not here this morning. But he says there to us in verse 32, after asking that great question, that he, God, did not spare His own son. This one truth, I believe, is the reason why the gospel is the gospel. It is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news about Jesus Christ. It's not depressing news. It's not sad news. It's not bad news. It is good news because God loved us so much that he did not spare even his own son. 
I want you to consider that God could have looked down at our situation, at the situation I'm talking about that all of us as humanity were in, that we were all neck deep in sin, and He could have said to us, tough. He could have looked at our situation, and we were just, uh, as Paul would say uh, earlier in this book, in chapter 6, we were all slaves of sin. We were all slaves of unrighteousness. We were all slaves of Satan, in effect. And God could have looked down upon us in that situation, and He could have said, tough. He could have said, you made your own bed, you lie in it. He could have said, I, I'm not getting my hands dirty with you. I'm not getting involved in all of that mess that you yourself have gotten into. But of course, as we read the gospel story throughout Scripture, we find that is not the case. God did not think that. God did not say that. Rather, He looked down on us in our helpless and hopeless state. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 5. And he said, I will get my hands dirty, in effect. He said, I will send my son to be delivered up by the hands of sin sinful and godless men to be crucified on a cross for the sins of the world, for your sins and for my sins. God said, I will do that. He did not spare his own son. This, of course, was not a thought that just popped into God's mind out of nowhere. This was not a thought that popped into the mind of God when he saw that, there, that sin had come into the world, that Satan in the form of a serpent had been allowed to roam there in the beautiful paradise of Eden that God had created for mankind to live in. But this is a thought that God had in mind. This was his plan from eternity. I want you to go back to the very first gospel account that we have in our New Testaments to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and let's begin reading here at verse 20. Matthew chapter 1 at verse 20, the Bible says to us, But when he, that is Joseph, had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God's plan from eternity, as we've already mentioned this morning, as I believe we can see even here in this text, was to send His one and only Son, His beloved Son, into the world to save His people from their sins. Now, the angel speaking this message to Joseph, Joseph being a Jew, Joseph might have thought about his people. That kind of terminology is thinking about, well, he's the Messiah. He is the one that is going to be sent by God the Father to save us, the Jews, the Israelites, from our sins. But, of course, we know it was greater than that, that God's plan in his mind was greater than just those who were physical descendants of Abraham. It was for all people. But he sent his son into the world to save his people from their sins, thus showing us that in Christ he is with us. He is truly our Emmanuel. He is God with us. That God is not against us, but God is for us. God is with us in his son. And since God did that for us all, as the Apostle Paul again wrote back in our text and. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. It stands to reason, as Paul says to us there, that God will, in Christ, freely give us all things. He will give us those things that we need. He will give us salvation. 
from our sins in His Son, Jesus Christ. The truth that the Apostle Paul is stating here in this chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 8, at least in my mind, is very similar to what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 6. Those of you who have been in the Wednesday auditorium class here with our brother Gavin going through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure you talked about this kind of there in the middle section of that sermon. But you might remember what Jesus said to us there in Matthew chapter 6, that if God cares for all of his creation, what we might even consider to be the smallest, most insignificant part of creation that we don't think about from time to time, if he cares for the birds and he cares for the grass and he cares for the flowers then why would we ever wonder whether he will care for us or not? Has not God shown evidence of that, of his physical care for the creation that he has made? As our brother Richard reminded us in his prayer this morning, that everything God made was good. It was very good. And if God cares for even the grass or the flowers or the birds of the air, why would we ever wonder that we who have been made in his image, that he would not care for us? And so it is, I believe, brothers and sisters, in the spiritual sense. And the Apostle Paul is trying to make that point to us as strongly as he can here in answering this question, if God is for us, who is against us? In verse 32, again of Romans chapter 8, that he did not spare his own son. Yes, God sent his one and only son to earth to die for our sins. And since that is the case... Since that is the evidence that those are the facts of the case there, why would we wonder whether our God who has sent his son, who did not spare his son, will help us succeed spiritually or not? Just as our great God cares for us physically, he will care for us spiritually as well. I think about something the Apostle Paul wrote, something that was to, to give the brethren in Thessalonica uh, hope and confidence uh, in, in this whole discussion of, of what has happened to those who have died in Christ, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 9, if you have your Bible to turn over there for just a moment, 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning at verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, as he is encouraging them and us to live in a way that fits that of a Christian, of a follower of Christ, to live in a sober way, to not be people of the night or of darkness or sin, but to be people of the day. He says in verse 9, Verse 8, verse 9, rather, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as also you are doing. These Christians right here that had questions about things to come, that had questions about questions about their brothers and sisters in Christ that had died in the Lord. And what's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to us when Jesus returns? Paul again deals with all of that. But I think he was saying to these Christians, to these saints, you need to know. And he's saying to us, we need to know. And you need to remind each other and we need to remind each other that God is for us. Again, verse 9, he says, for God has not destined us for wrath. Now certainly God is a God of wrath. Certainly that is a characteristic that he has. And if you go to the next book in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he talks some about God's wrath and he talks about who's going to be the recipients of God's wrath. It's those who don't know God and those who haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But assuming we are not in that category of people, Paul was saying to these brethren and to us, God has not destined us for that. No, God has destined us for salvation. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ so that we can live together with him. In verse 11, again, here is the admonition. Here is the encouragement for these brethren to encourage one another and to strengthen and comfort one another with this good news that he did not spare his own son. But secondly, as we look at evidence that is given to us back in our text in Romans chapter 8, we find connected to that that God certainly did not spare his own son, that he sent his son to give his life on the cross to bring us salvation. But secondly, from verse 34, Paul says that Christ Jesus is he who was raised. Yes, he who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And so not only did God send Jesus to die for us, but in so doing, he did not leave Jesus hanging up on that cross. He did not even leave our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ lying there in the tomb. No, he raised him from the dead. He used his awesome, incredible, limitless power to raise our Lord and Savior from the dead to give him the victory over death and the devil. And this truth, too, is why the gospel is the gospel, is why the gospel is good news. If you're still there in the book of Romans, to go back a few verses from what we are looking at this morning, back to verse 11. We obviously don't have time to read this entire section here. But but I want you to think about, as the Apostle Paul in, in this section is talking to us about Uh, living our life according to the flesh or living our life according to the Spirit. Notice what he says there to give us help, to give us comfort, to encourage us and motivate us to live according to the Spirit. He says in verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul was reminding this audience and us that it was the Father's power. The Father used His great power to raise His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And it is that same power that God will use to raise us from the dead. I would tell you this, you know, Romans chapter 8, I think it's just a great chapter of the Bible. There there are a lot of rich truths here in this chapter. I don't know that I understand everything perfectly that Paul says here. It could be that Paul is speaking of us being raised from the dead in a spiritual sense. That is to say, by raising us from spiritual death when we are buried with Christ in baptism. Again, back to Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about that. That as we go down into the waters of baptism, we are buried with Christ, we are crucified with Christ, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. And we're no longer living according to the flesh, but we are living according to the Spirit. It may be, maybe Paul has it in mind. Maybe he is thinking here about physically, about raising those of us who are in Christ from the dead when Christ returns and giving us those new immortal bodies that will live forever. Maybe it could be that Paul has both things in mind here as he talks about the power that God had to raise Christ is the power that he has to raise us. But let me ask you, whichever one it is of those, or maybe it's both of those, that Jesus Christ is raised. That's the point. And he raised him not to just be in heaven doing nothing, but he is sitting at the right hand of God. What, was, what has Jesus done since he arose from the grave? 
Well, Paul reminds us, as other scriptures do, that he is at their Father's right hand, that he is reigning on his throne, that he is interceding on our behalf. Those of us who are followers of his, he is interceding now on our behalf. A couple of passages with that thought in mind. First of all, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and in verse 1, uh, another good news message here. 1 John 2 and verse 1, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, what a comforting thought that ought to be to us, especially as we began the lesson this morning. By When we get in those times when we have those thoughts and we're in those moments where we think that everyone is against us, life is against us, we've been dealt a bad hand. And even God, our creator, is against us. What a comforting thought to know in those times. And even as John says here, even a comforting thought to know that when we as his children sin, that we have an advocate, the advocate, Jesus the Christ, to plead our case before our Father As you know, I'm sure very well, the end of the second half of 1 John chapter 1, uh, the Apostle John reminds us of who God is, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And then he talks to us about, we need to be people who are light as well, and we need to be people who are connected to the light, walking in the light. And as we're walking in the light, we're, we're going to sin. There's going to be times when we sin, and when we do that, we need to confess our sins and turn away from those sins But assuming that we do that, we have an advocate. We have Jesus the Christ who is on our side. He is for us. Something that the Hebrews writer said along these lines in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, Let's begin reading there at verse 23, of course, in, in the discussion about how Jesus Christ is so much better that he is our great high priest who will be our high priest continually forever. Verse 23, pick up the reading there. The writer says, The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Here is the good news. That's good news, certainly. But verse 25, for each one of us, Therefore he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We remember if we are students of the Old Testament about the high priest and the high priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year and the high priest offering sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, the Israelites, but also for his own sins. But then we think about Jesus as being our great high priest. And again, what a glorious thought it ought to be that as our permanent high priest, Jesus Christ, as the writer says here, completely He completely saves us and he intercedes for us who draw near to God through him. If that doesn't say that God is for us, I don't know what does. To think about the fact, as we've already talked about this morning, that he did not spare his own son. He sent the best that he could send to this earth. And that certainly would be enough. But then this son who gave his life upon the cross was raised from the dead. And he is reigning at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. He is able and willing to completely and totally save us. Again, why would God raise Jesus from the dead? Why would Jesus be interceding on our behalf if God truly is not for us? 
And then the third evidence and answer to this question, if God is for us, who is against us, is found once again back in our text in Romans chapter 8. Really the rest of this chapter, verses 35 through 39. And this phrase, that there is nothing really, Paul is saying to us, I think, in this text, there is absolutely nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God. Twice the Apostle Paul brings up this thought. Once it is as a question here at verse 35, when he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And once it is just a, seems to me to be a statement of fact and a statement of faith. When you come to verses 38 and 39, he says, for I am convinced that none of these things, and he gives a long list of things, I am convinced that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God. This is Paul's faith on display here. And you think about all the things that Paul went through in his life. You can think about it as we begin our lesson again this morning. How often Paul could have, I don't know if he felt this way, but he certainly had the opportunity to think, everybody is against me. <laughs> you know, my former Jewish brethren, my, my former uh, Uh, Pharisees and religious leaders, they're all against me. And maybe it could be the case that his family had turned his back on him before because he became a Christian. And even we read, like in places like 2 Timothy chapter 4, there was Demas, there were others who had forsaken Paul and left him. And he could have very easily felt like the world is against me. And if he wasn't careful, Satan could have used that thought. And he could have even thought, you know, God himself is against me because all of these bad things are happening in my life. But no, Paul was a man of deep faith and conviction. And he says, I am convinced that there is absolutely nothing that I can experience that will separate me from the love of God. In saying these two, in asking this question and making this statement here in this text, though, At least in my mind, it's almost as if Paul is anticipating that someone will read this text and say, well, yes, I can see very clearly all that God has done and all that God continues to do. And maybe even say in their mind, I can see what God is promising to do. And all of that demonstrates, all of that is evidence that he truly is for us. But you know, if he really is for us, why do we suffer? That's a hard question, isn't it? But I think it fits very well, at least in my mind, again, into the greater context of Romans chapter 8. If you go back in this chapter, Paul is talking about suffering here. Notice just a few things that he says, verse 17. He says, and if we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Drop down to verse 23. He says, And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The Apostle Paul, as a lot of the writers of the New Testament, were writing to people, Christian saints, who were suffering. People who may have felt at either the time that these letters were being written to them or at some time in their life, like life is against me. And maybe even thinking perhaps God himself is against me. And so it seems to me that perhaps Paul, as he asked this question at verse 31 and as he 
gives us this answer that we're looking at, that there's absolutely nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ, that the Apostle Paul gets very specific. And he says, he doesn't just say there's nothing. He could have just said that. Would have been a lot fewer words to read in this last section of Romans chapter 8. But he gets very specific. He says to these brethren and to us, there is absolutely nothing. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not peril, not sword, not death, not life. Not angels or principalities, not things present or things to come, not powers or heights or depth or any created thing. None of those things and more that we could add to that list. Nothing has the power to separate us from Christ's love for us and our love for Him. To help us maybe better understand the question that Paul is raising here in verse 31, and perhaps even as he may be anticipating the question that some might raise, yes, I can see all that evidence, but why why am I still having to suffer? If God is really for me, my life here ought to be great. I think we need to understand Paul's statement that he makes here in verse 36. And so the Apostle Paul, again, in asking these questions in this text, he says to us, just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Here the apostle is quoting from the Old Testament. And he is quoting from the Psalms. So I want you to go back to Psalm 44 if you have your your Bible or your app with you this morning. To turn back there and to just read that entire Psalm. It's not that long. So we can hopefully put this statement these questions that Paul is raising here in Romans 8 into their proper context and understand them a little bit better. Psalm 44, beginning at verse 1. The psalmist says, O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove uh, drove out the nations, then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples, then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Though you will put, though through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long and we will give thanks to your name forever. Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from our adversary, from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and you have not pro... Uh, pro Uh, profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way, yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with a shadow of death. 
If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help. And redeem us from the sake of your loving kindness. This psalm is like a lot of psalms, I think, that we read. You can see a lot of different thoughts going through the psalmist's mind and all of that comes out. But it seems to me that the psalmist seems to be speaking for Israel, for God's people here. And he is basically saying in the psalm to God that, yes, if we have not trusted in you, if we have gone after false gods and idols, that we could understand why we are suffering. <laughs> but it seems that they are saying that's not the case, that we have trusted in you to save us. So why have you forsaken us? Why have you abandoned us? Why have you, quote, rewarded us by allowing us to suffer at the hand of our enemies? And though it may have appeared to Israel that God at this point was against them, I think if I'm reading the psalm right, the message is exactly the opposite. That God was not against them. In fact, God was for them because they had been trusting of Him. They had been obedient to Him. He was very much for them. But as they remembered His name and as they did His will, they suffered. They suffered for that. I like what one writer had to say uh, about this particular point and what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans 8 and the quotation from Psalm 44 and putting that all together, I think, in a better way that I could. He said this, quote, the context where this quotation occurs from Psalm 44 and verse 22 indicates the fear that the Lord had forsaken them as an interpretation of the misfortunes befalling them. Two, we are inclined to think that when all goes well, that such is evidence that the Lord loves uh, that the Lord uh, loves us and is with us. And when reverses and misfortune beset us, that he has forsaken us as indicated thereby. This passage refutes this philosophy and teaches us that material con conditions favorable or adverse are no index to the esteem in which the Lord holds us. And I think there is a great thought in that for us. It ought to be a comforting thought to us. That just because it seems like life is against us and everything is opposed to us and things aren't going our way and we begin to think in our own mind, we may not say it out loud to anybody else, but we begin to think that perhaps God is against us. That we need to remember as Paul is stressing here in this text in Romans chapter 8 in this beautiful passage that God definitely is for us. Just because things aren't going our way is not necessarily an indication that God is against us. <laughs> now, it may be an indication that we have left God. And if that's the case, I, I believe God will reciprocate in kind. He will, he will give us up like Romans chapter 1 and He will say, you know, if that's the life you want to live, if that's, if that's the decisions that you make about your life, have at it. <laughs> But assuming we're not in that spot in our life, we need to know that God is for us even if things don't seem to be going well in our life. Neither should we, as this person said in this quote, neither should we say, well, everything seems to be going great in my life, so I know that's evidence that God is with me. 
Neither one of those statements are necessarily true. Here's the evidence in Romans chapter 8 that God is for us. He didn't spare His own Son. He raised His Son from the dead who is reigning at His right hand interceding for us. And there is absolutely nothing that has been created that we will experience in this life that can separate us from the love of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, when we suffer, as maybe even these Christians that Paul was writing to here in Rome were suffering or would soon suffer, when we suffer, whether for the cause of Christ or just because we live in a world that has been given over to sin, Satan can begin to whisper the lie in our ear that, hey, God really isn't for you. He is against you. And what you need to do is just turn your back on him and you need to live life for yourself. In those times, though, the Apostle Paul, I believe, would say, as I'm trying to say to you this morning, we must not, we must not listen to his lie. We must instead hear God's truth. That if God is for us, who then is against us? This life is not easy. There will be things that we suffer, again, because we're just living in a world of sin or because we have made the decision, as even those Israelites of old in Psalm 44, they had made the decision that they were going to live as true children of God. We're going to suffer. But if we are truly in Jesus Christ, that doesn't matter. For He is for us. And we are now and forevermore, in the words of the Apostle Paul, more than conquerors through him who loved us. What about you this morning? Is God truly for you? I think in a sense, God is for all of us. I mean, we, we are all his creation. We have all been made in his image. As the, as the Apostle Peter said, as he spoke to the people there in Athens in Acts 17, we are all children of God. We're all his offspring. Can you think of that if you're a parent in those terms this morning? I mean, there, there's not a single child that is your child that you don't love, that you're not rooting for them to succeed in life. God is for all of us in a sense. But if we make the decision that we're not going to live for him, there will come a point, God will determine that in our life, where his face will be against us. First Peter chapter 3, you can read that. What about you this morning? Are you on the right side or are you on God's side? If you're not, then because of God's love for you, because he didn't spare his own son but sent him to shed his precious blood to save us from our sins, you can be on God's side. You can leave this building on the winning team. You can come before this audience this morning, confess your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and repenting of your sins, turning away from your own selfish will and committing yourself to doing God's will, you can then be baptized into Jesus Christ, have all those sins taken away, and you can come out of the waters of baptism as a new person to walk in newness of life. You can be resurrected in that sense. For those of us who are Christians, do, do we remember that God is for us? <laughs> Sometimes I fear that, that our confidence, as, as John has spoken to us about so much, if you've been in the Sunday Auditorium class this quarter, that our confidence is more in ourselves than it is in God. 
and more in our own feeble power than it is in God's limitless power to raise his son from the dead, which will raise us one day. We need to have confidence if we are children of God because of who God is and what he has done for us. And it may be because your confidence has waned that you have begun to drift away from him. Would you come back to him as his child? It may just be that you're suffering and you're struggling right now. You need help and encouragement and prayers of your brethren. However, we can be of help to you as we're about to sing this song of invitation. What a great message he is able to deliver thee. If you need to respond to the invitation of Christ, do that now as we stand and as we sing.